You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. It was March 4th on the Third Age, 3019, at dawn, when finally the forces of Rohan forced the forces of Sauron into the forest to be defeated by the horns. That's right, we are celebrating the victory of the Battle of Helm's Deep and the War of the Ring. Guys, I uh, I couldn't possibly be more excited to celebrate this holiday with uh, two fantastic gentlemen and all of our listeners. This is Systematic Geekology. We are the Priest of the Geeks. I'm Joshua Knoll. I have spent a large portion of my day either listening to the Two Towers audiobook, watching the movie, or I actually played Lord of the Rings Conquest and personally won the Battle of Helm's Deep on both sides, just so I can say that I did it. (laughs) And I'm joined by none other than uh, Wilbo Baggins, your favorite hobbit. Yeah, yeah, Wilbo is here. And um, yeah, happy Helm's Deep Day, um, I guess. And and so excited to be here to talk about uh, this with you all. And, And again, yeah, like I, it's been a while since I've read uh, the source material. I've, I have a long history with Tolkien and, and love it and have read a lot. Um, but it's been a while since I picked up the source material and read those chapters. And uh, man, they're so rich and it's so good. And I'm really looking forward to talking about this. And I'm here with, with none other than Nick Polk of the Tolkien Heads. Uh, he's uh, brought his mead with him today. Uh, Nick, how's it going, man? What you been geeking out on? Uh, I'm doing really well, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. I've got my giant pint glass here and so i'm celebrating helm's deep day by uh emulating all of the victorious rohirrim and uh what i've been nerding out recently on is the sopranos uh i talked about this a little bit will and i did a live stream talked about that going through the last season uh and it's been super awesome and i've been loving it and i feel like i'm actually an italian american when uh i have no idea but (laughs) (laughs) Live, laugh, lasagna, if you will. Yeah. Mm, mm. Also, uh, a teaser for one of our upcoming HBO series. Nick's going to be joining. I think Kino and Christian are going to be the host on that with him to talk about uh, Sopranos. It's going to be so that much be a lot of fun. fun. Yeah. 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 That's going to be great. I uh, have done a podcast with Trip called Tolkien Heads, and that's Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity. Um, And we did like an introduction to Tolkien class where we focused on his literary career, his biography, his theology. um, And that's pretty much where I got connected with you all at Systematic Ecology was at Theology Beer Camp, which Trip put on Mm -hmm. in October. So, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. And there was a moment when I needed to let my dog out because I hadn't been here all day. And both of you rode in my car to my house in the woods of <laughs> Chapel Hill, North Carolina to let my dog out. And then we went um, and hung out at a, a barcade there for a little while. So so we yeah. we got a little history here. So I'm glad that we're having a little reunion here talking about one of our favorite geekdoms for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of fun because uh, I was like uh... – if you've ever grew up and you went to church camp or something because you had like one other friend or like you went to school and you didn't know anybody, that was me at Theology Beer Camp. And then I was so excited when I met Nick. I was like, this is my first friend, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so good time. And then we hung out and it was like the trinity of nerddom. Yeah. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then I had another friend who wasn't even part of Theology Beer Camp who wanted to come by just to talk about Tolkien with us. And that was that was fun. Uh, that was fun. We met up a little bit at uh, what's, what's the name of that pinball place? Uh, uh, Baxter Bar and Arcade, my, fa- oh, my favorite happy place. That was place. awesome. 
other awesome. than the beach. That's yeah. that's that's the place. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of a bunch of guys talking about Tolkien, let's transition right mm-hmm. into celebrating. I I would I want to say this might be the most pivotal battle in maybe all of Middle Earth. Even when I really think about it, none of the other things happen without this. And a lot of your history before kind of builds up to the Battle of Helm's Deep. So you get a lot of both the history and the future of Middle-earth kind of revolving around this point, if that makes sense in the story. Yeah. And um, I'm going to try to do this in a, in a way that both those who aren't like obsessed with Tolkien and those who like this is their five millionth time listening or watching Helm's Deep can enjoy this. Yeah, I when you talk about being the pivotal battle, I, I didn't realize until I went back into the book that it's in chapter seven, in the right smack dab in the middle of the book, this battle happens in the middle of the trilogy. So you, it's like bookend by two books and it's right in the middle. So so it really is right there in the very middle of the entire trilogy of this story that um, Tolkien created. And so, so yeah, you're right. It's right there in the middle and the hinge point of all things. And when you move from like this understanding of this war and the shadow of Isengard coming to Helm's Deep and then at the end we'll get to more of this but like a new dawn that the is is arising the, and, and the victors come at the break of a new day um aragon usually even even says there in the chapter well we'll see what happens when when the new day dawns and and so it is like a, a new day that that has emerged from from the story that that i just um love so much <laughs> yeah yeah and we're gonna try to like I said, we're trying to do this for everybody, both noobs and some of the people who've been around for a while. So we're going to tell you some about how we were introduced to this story, tell you some about the background, why the battle is important, some of the characters. Then we're going to get, for those who, who just have been in this for a while, you could skip ahead a little bit if you wanted to. We're going to talk about our favorite passages and how we're celebrating this day. So it'll be a fun packed one. First things first, uh, I'll throw it to the Tolkien head of us here. Um, Nick, what was your first introduction to specifically the story of the Battle of Helm's Deep? Yeah, the introduction to the actual Battle of Helm's Deep was, so I was in grade school uh, when the Fellowship of the Ring came out, as well as the Two Towers. And my parents grew up in evangelical culture, and they did not allow me to go because it was satanic obviously, until I showed them that Tolkien was a Christian writer and actually converted C.S. Lewis to Christianity. And my parents were like, okay. So we went to Blockbuster and promptly rented both movies. And we watched uh, both of them back to back. And uh, it was just in time for The Return of the King when it had come out in theaters. So we watched Helm's Deep and we probably rewatched that battle a million times as I was growing up and then went and uh, saw Return of the King uh, in theaters as a family. So that was my first introduction. Nice, nice. Yeah, for for me, I'm going to save Will because Will's is probably going to be a little bit different being that you and I are about the same age when the movies and stuff came out. I wasn't allowed to watch them until the third movie came out. But it wasn't because of witchcraft or anything. My parents were part of the evangelicals that used Lord of the Rings as analogy for all things about the Bible, because clearly it's all about Jesus and Aragorn's Jesus, Gandalf's Jesus, Sam's Jesus, everybody's Amen. Jesus. Amen. The story. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but but I, and I find this really strange. And like if there's ever like a like, I feel like it's weird to be like my parents did this really well. Like, I feel like that's weird coming from your kid. But 
it was because of violence that they didn't want me to watch it. And it's something that I just find really interesting because now a lot of your evangelical parents don't care about violence. It's did they say a naughty word or did they show someone's breast? And it's like violence doesn't matter. So at least I got to be happy that they were consistent and saying uh, this is actually too violent for a kid. <laughs> so cool. I and because they didn't let me watch it, me being the very obedient child I was said, OK, then um, I can't get the books. I have no money. But there's this thing at the time called Yahoo, because I didn't know what Google was yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I I started <laughs> researching and like looking up what Lord of the Rings was. And so a lot of my my knowledge really wasn't even from books for the longest time. and just random stuff, articles and stuff that I looked up over time. So, yeah, fun stuff. Will, what was your first introduction to the Battle of Helm's Deep? My my parents said I couldn't watch it because there's too many orc breasts in the in the movie, so they didn't. Man, tell me those I. freaking <laughs> orc boobies, man, they'll ruin it every time. Ruined it. They couldn't. Uh, no, um, yeah, I'm I, I am a little older, but I I would say like growing up as a grade school kid and a punk middle schooler, high schooler, I, I was not a big reader. I, I was a punk surfer kid that read comic books and uh, making Sunday school teachers cry. Ironically, though, I'm now uh, a pastor. But anyway, um, so but when I started to mature a little bit and got into college and started working at like uh, summer camps in the mountains in the woods, uh, I started reading um, the narnia series i was like man this is this is really good it's capturing my imagination i'm like oh well uh, i heard if you really want to level up uh your fantasy then then you better jump into the hobbit and talk and i was familiar with like the 70s cartoons and and um that expression of of the story and so i knew of it so i just dove right into the books and then reading the books um at summer camp i was a, a camp counselor a kid from the beach in the deep mountains um without any technology or tv or screens around me it was pretty magical and then eventually um the movies came out and i just could not wait to see how they would uh portray this story in in movie format and and loved it and so by the time the second movie came around there we were uh in the theaters and and i do remember uh, sitting there watching the movie, loving every minute of it. But but for me, the that battle takes a really long time in the movie and the bulk of the movie. And and when I read the book, The Two Towers, I, I literally at the end, when you have Shiloh, the spider, and this kind of cliffhanger, whether Frodo is dead or not, or what is Sam going to do, I literally remember finished reading that chapter and driving immediately to the bookstore to buy the third book so that I could find out what happens next. And so when they changed that up in the movie, to where you had to wait till Sheila till the next movie. I was so mad and pissed off that I was like, are we going to get to Sheila? Are we going to get to this? Why is this uh, uh, battle taking so long? But, but now, you know, hindsight after watching all three movies and seeing what they've done and, and understanding the pivotal point of this particular battle, uh, moving it to the third to give it more time and breathing rooms. So you don't have too much going on in one movie. I, I definitely understand. But that was my first reaction when I was in the movie theater. I was like, what? New spider? What are we doing? Why am I here? Why do we spend so long on this battle? But that was um, uh, 20-something Will. I So they made a few major changes from the book to the movie on this one. And I'm not going to go too much into some of it because we're going to be talking about the ints on Arbor Day. So I want to I wanna leave a little, little teaser out there for everybody. But one thing I did like that the movie did really well, which is something that translates better in filmography than it does literature, I think, is how they kind of book ended their themes. 
where Mary and Pippin felt like we're insignificant. Why did we even come on this battle? And by the end of it, Mary's giving the speech to the Ents, trying to convince them to go. Of course, we know in the book, the Ents went and had nothing to do with Mary and Pippin at all. Why they went, it was because of Gandalf. But it was fun to see in this one where they're kind of mirroring that. You're seeing where three guys were just clueless and felt like they had nothing to do that they weren't no longer a part of the story why are we together and then at the end you know they're coming together defending helms deep with the forces of rohan um and then you know sauron's story also and it's all bookended at the same time so you have the scene at the end of the movie where it's like flipping between different battles and what's happening with sam and frodo all at once and i was like that's really cool and would be a headache if they did that in the book <laughs> mm-hmm. you imagine just paragraph to paragraph it's just a different scene like i that would be awful, <laughs> but worked out in the movie. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. If if a major theme, and and Nick, you've delved more into this with, with Trip, but but like a major theme is the bond of friendship and and how like a common enemy or a battle bonds you together. If you know, we see that between Frodo and Sam, and then we see that uh, with others. But here in this one, I love this bonding of Legolas and Gimli. That that this is their time where where they are bonding and it is a war and common enemy and a game they're playing of who can have the most kills uh as they're as they're moving along into to this and it's really there that they have this kind of mutual respect and friendship and bonding in fact on the the edition i have of the book has them two on the cover um because because that's really the theme that's that's bonding them yeah that's those are some of my favorite passages too the gimli and legolas passages because this really is (laughs) <laughs> the the chapter where you really get to see their friendship bloom in a way that hasn't before. You get little seeds before in the first book later and in the early parts, but really at Helm's Deep, you see even there's a part where Gimli is lost and they don't know where he is in the battle. And Legolas is <laughs> distraught because he can't find his friend, not only to find him and hope he's okay, but also to brag about him uh, upping his score and potentially beating his friend. <laughs> Okay, pop quiz then, Nick. Pop quiz as the token expert. How many kill shots did Gimli have? Lord, I, I'm thinking here. I'm going to say he it had. It infuriates me. He had 42. Yeah, okay. there you go. Nice. Nailed it. Nailed nope. it. I, and the only reason I know that is because I just read it again today. But but um, 42. And so then how many did Legolas have? He had, it was. I think he had 39 or 40 because he, that's like, it's 40. I'm going to say 40. Yeah, very close. He said, there's one, uh, oh, you beat me by one. Ah, uh, no. That's kind okay. of what, what he says. He says In yeah, the movie. You, okay. In, <laughs> In the movie. This is what, I, I thought the movie did this a lot funnier. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Gimli says, how many did you get? And Legolas says 42, which is my favorite number. So I was like, okay, Legolas should win. That's the perfect number. And then Ghibli says 43, and he's sitting on the guy, his axe in the guy's head, and he's still twitching. So Legolas shoots him and goes, okay, so mine's 43 now. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, man, that doesn't count. (laughs) And it was beautiful. And their friendship, too, really means a lot when you think of the history of dwarves and elves and what's going on there. So, And Mm -hmm, and I feel like mm -hmm. that's one sad thing about the cinema version is how many people saw Lord of the Rings before they saw The Hobbit. So they didn't quite understand how significant that relationship was. And yeah, if you did understand, it was like, man, that's a powerful friendship, really. Well, and, you know, one of the things that would that's cool about you were talking about the things that cinematography does better. Um, and even when uh, directors and film writers kind of re 
rewrite some things, it just feels better. And I think you cap, uh, you capture people's attention who normally wouldn't have read Lord of the Rings, which was me. I, I was also similar to Will <laughs> where I was a punk as well. And, and I actually was like very resistant to reading. Um, but later on, because I was familiar with Tolkien and I was bored on the summer and I was working at a summer camp and I couldn't use my phone. I just read Lord of the Rings. And so, yeah. Mm. See, my history with reading, I'm dipping <laughs> just a little bit. I, for a long time, wanted to be a reader because a lot of my family was readers and I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I didn't realize this because I had ADHD till later. And what's funny is I didn't realize until I found a way that I could read successfully that I realized that it was an ADHD thing. And, and this is like, it infuriates some people. I have to like take notes or like highlight or like be interacting physically with the book in order to actually stay engaged, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which also where an audiobook helps. I can like walk or something like I have to be doing something. Yeah, I, I have to take notes and underline and highlight even in like just like cheesy young adult fantasy. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and maybe that's me trying to stay stay uh, glued in. Maybe may I have some ADHD, too. But but yeah, but I but I um yeah, I it's it just totally flipped. But now I, I read every day and I read so much and I want to read so much that like uh, mm-hmm. when when I get like my eyes dilated to have like an eye exam there was like one day i couldn't read because of my eyesight i was like oh freaking out what am i gonna do but then like then i had this kind of epiphany of like yeah there are things like audiobooks and and things to help others who can't see as well and there's podcasts and things so so yeah i think Mm -hmm. and if you're gonna gonna get into i mean i don't know if tolkien's like the entrance way for this but it could (laughs) be i like it i think just his rich imagery and 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 the way he describes Helm's Deep and the way he describes the woods and the air and it's a chill and a crisp to the air. And, you know, they're standing there silently. And even at the end of this battle, like uh, in the book, they're like, yeah, like a black wind or like black smoke waved away by a strong wind. You're like, oh, you can just see the orcs being mm-hmm. whiffed away. Uh, it, it's it's so powerful and so good. And yeah. And he, he also does a really good job at describing things that you typically that I wouldn't be able to describe, but I can still see what he means. If that makes sense. Like he's talking about the ints and he's like, they, they look young in a sense that they're vibrant in this kind of way. And you see like the life and the spark of green in their eyes, but they also look old. You look in their eyes and you can tell that there's years behind them. And I'm like, Mm. that makes no sense if I'm just trying to visualize it like word for word. But at the same time, I know exactly what he means and I can see that. (laughs) And it's, I don't, he he does great with that. However, (laughs) We're not just here to critique his writing style. <laughs> um, we did want to talk some about what leads up to this battle. What is the background? I said that so much of the history of Arda of Middle Earth builds up to the Battle of Helm's Deep. And I wanted to talk some about what I meant with that, um, even getting into like, who are the Ents? Why do the Ents exist? Um, and why is Helm's Deep called Helm's Deep? So, Nick, how much do you know about all this? Let me throw it to you for a second. Um, so I know the development of the history of Rohan, and I can't give you specific dates about when Helm Hammerhand, you know, who, what, who Helm's Deep is named after and the building of that and what year and like all the legends behind it. But I do know event, like the War of the Ring, which is in the Third Age, with like you said, thirty nineteen mm-hmm. is when this battle takes place. <clears throat> and basically, the, in the War of the Ring with Sauron coming back, and how that uh, eventually leads up to Helm's Deep, um, yeah, with Saruman. Yeah, I there's really so many different parts of the history you could talk about. Right. Um, 
I know you, you you mentioned some of like specifically Helm's Hammerhead. So originally, and I forget what it was, but Tolkien actually had a physical place he had visited that he had in mind when he's talking about Helm's Deep. But his armies took fortress in this kind of crevice between the rocks, more or less. Mm-hmm. And later they decided to build. Um, what, what's it called? Is it Horn? Oh, it's Horn something. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? You're talking about the Hornburg, or are you talking about the name before that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they build the Hornburg there. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, what what's interesting is, and this is part of what what I was talking about some before we even started recording. The dwarves are who helped fortify Hornburg. So the, the you know the men called on the dwarves to help fortify it. And if you didn't know, with the creation of the ints, um, Yavana I think is the name of the um, the valor who requested the creation of ints. That's right. That's right. Yeah. She did it because dwarves were tearing down the forest to build things. Right. So it's, which is interesting when you think about that background and you look later on to this battle, what were the forces of Sauron able to make it through? The fortified, the the structures that were built by the dwarves and man. And when they finally drive back the forces, what finally defeats the forces of Saruman are the trees. So I, I thought that was a really fun part of the history. When you really think about it, you're like, okay, see what you did there, Tolkien. Yeah, there's like a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of ironic turning, and for people, we won't get too much into the weeds of like of dwar- the history of dwarves and ants. But Yavanna was actually married to the Vala Aule, who was actually oh, yeah. the one who created the dwarves, and so they had. It was almost like a heated like spouse battle where it was like, <laughs> these are my freaking, you know, these are my dwarves. And she's like, well, these are my ants. And so of course, then Yvonne goes to the lead Vala Manway and says, Hey, help bring my, the ants to life. And he does. And of course, like you said, it's, a, it's this ironic turn of like, uh, what actually ends up saving, uh, the men in those battles and the dwarves and elves is, uh, is, is, uh, ants and who warns and nature. Yeah. Very cool. I love so it's not the man-made uh, structures of towers and walls and stone, but rather the creation that men are originally a part of and in kin with uh, that that saved them. Is that what you're saying there? Man? I think I think to a certain extent because if it wasn't for men's action to participating, I think it's more of a reconciliation with more mm. like well, like Josh said, like that. Uh, I think more credit probably goes to Gandalf and his reconnecting with the ants <laughs> and all that. But if we didn't have Theoden standing up and risking the lives of like the whole population of Rohan, essentially like the male population mm-hmm. of Rohan uh, wouldn't have, uh, it wouldn't have turned out that way. So it's almost like this reconnecting with, with our, yeah. the original nature, at least in Tolkien's middle earth. Now I can't remember if this part happens in the book or not, but in, in the movie, um, what's, what's Saruman's fortress called? Uh, uh, Isengard. Uh, Isengard. Yeah. yeah. There's another one. I forget what for. his tower is. Yeah. Uh, Orthanc. But, Orthanc. Okay. Yeah. 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 They, um, they flood it. They break a dam and they flood the area. That's right. And again, I can't, does that happen in the book? I that does. Remember. The ants go and they flood, yeah. they break dams that Saruman and the orcs made to flood his valley. Yeah. So. What I found interesting about that, also getting to the background of this, right? Helm's Hammerhead picked Helm's Deep because it was naturally fortified by the crevices of the mountains. Whereas Saruman found a place that didn't work naturally and tried to force it to work by building the dam and everything. 
which ended up being his downfall. Well, one of the cool things that connects to the history of that, and we can talk about just like why Helm's Deep is significant and even like where its positioning is and in where Saruman is in the relation to the war is that Orthanc, Isengard, that tower was Mm -hmm. built by the first men of Numenor who came to Middle Earth. Oh, see, I didn't. He ended up, it was abandoned and and he later occupied it. And part of the reason why it was abandoned was because Numenor became this colonial power and became prideful and it split a bunch of kingdoms. And of course, there's broken kingdoms and there's just a downfall that uh, pride uh, initiates. And so, uh, so Saruman goes and takes over. And so part of it too, like you said, not only the strategic strategic positioning of that fortress at Helm's Deep, but it's in the center of the map. And uh, so we've got Gondor, which is like southeast, right against Mordor, which is in the east. And then there's south, which is the southlings are going to come and attack. So the only people are basically Rohan in the middle. Southeast, we have uh, Gondor. And, uh, and now we've got Saruman in the west. So there's almost like this pincer going on that's basically mm-hmm. going to destroy men. So if Saruman had captured that, it would have basically guaranteed the downfall of Gondor as well. So it's a defensive Ooh. position for Rohan to defend themselves as well as the ongoing attack to Gondor, uh, as well as if Saruman had taken that. Yeah. And we know the Battle of Gondor is also significant for Sam and Frodo being able to sneak past the forces to get the ring into Mordor. Right, right. Mm. So... All of Arda really is at stake here. And, and you know, when we're talking about the background of it, layered onto this also is how Saruman is getting his forces and why Saruman's getting his forces. Saruman, if you remember from the last book, kind of threw in the towel already. It was like, Sauron's too powerful. We might as well join him. And he's just after power and trying to survive himself. And the way he does that is by creating things. And he's tearing down the trees to build these Urukai and... Um, what was it with a half orc, half men? I forget. Do they have a name or are they just called half orcs? Uh, they're called half orcs. It's, it's well, we won't get into the the weeds of orcs, but it's unclear what kind of orcs Urukai are and what kind of orcs he uses. Yeah. Also, <laughs> if we talked about the weeds of it all, it's just it's also interesting because he's breeding them. So it's not like they're coming from nowhere. Right. So he's breeding them with the earth and like tearing down trees to do it. And it's like, how exactly does that work? And then it also gets really <laughs> cloudy when you think of like Tolkien seems to never make up his mind whether orcs were the creation of Morgoth or were orcs just tormented elves. Who knows? Right. He's said both at some point. <laughs> And, and that name Urukai isn't um, isn't revealed right until this until this chapter because at a point mm-hmm. they're like we don't know who they are they look different but they're kind of the same but what's going on and eventually they cry out who they are in the battle and kind of like almost to like taunt them here we are and we're here to defeat you and and it's then like uh, that Aragon starts showing this kind of leadership that people are like oh who is this guy he's standing up talking to them <laughs> and speaking about a new dawn and and has this kind of strategic plan of how to kind of um, wrap around and, and get them from behind um, that is pretty amazing uh, to see unfold. But but those kind of reveals along the way that this pivotal moment, this revealing of, of their actual name and who they are is right there in the chapter of chapter seven of the two towers. So for those who are completely lost, <laughs> um, the Battle of Helm's Deep, it takes place after the ring is given to Frodo. So hopefully you know who the main characters are, Frodo and Sam, the fellowship goes out. Frodo and Sam separate. Merry and Pippin are kidnapped. The other three chase after them. It ends up where 
Merry and Pippin are with the Ents, and the others are end up going to Rohan, find the king was corrupted, get the whole backstory of what's going on with Saruman, and realize they have to defend Helm's Deep. So that's where it's at in the story. From here, as uh, Nick was mentioning earlier, if they don't win this, then um, Gondor is the next in jeopardy. Right. And that's kind of necessary, like we said, for Frodo and Sam to make it into Mordor. So that's where this is taking place in the overall story. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Also, like rereading that chapter, Helmsley, I, I read this chapter before the King of um, Golden Hall. And, and then you have this kind of like transformation of Theoden and, and Wormtongue uh-huh. there. Uh, and so that had Man. that whole thing leading up to what's going on here. You see how important the, the king is, King Theoden, uh, is in the story in Pivotal Point of, of even that transformation that takes place and breaking free of this kind of like seduction or, or, um, this evil whispering in, in his ear and that whole kind of exorcism, as you uh, might <laughs> say, uh, yeah. frees up to allow this battle to even take place. Yeah. Yeah. I want, yeah. And I know we've talked about Saruman and things like that and even the background, but even more of like, because Theoden's also my favorite because of almost immediately mm-hmm. after he gets uncorrupted, he's like, I got to fix things. I got to get into action, which is crazy. And it was like years that he was, you know, under the will of Saruman at this point. Um, so like Saruman occupied Orthanc was originally a good guy for those of you who don't know. And part of the, the, the importance of knowing that Orthanc was created by the prideful men of Numenor thousands of years ago is that Tolkien's basically giving us a clue here that Saruman is going to do the exact same thing by occupying that space. And so originally he teams up with Sar- Sauron and Sauron basically backs up Saruman and gives him the resources to build these Orokai and orcs and stuff like that. Saruman then plans to not only defeat <laughs> the men at Rohan, but then to, after that happens, he's going to then uh, let Sauron take care of Gondor so then Saruman can then become more powerful than Sauron and then take over and get the One Ring and becomes powerful ruler in Middle-earth. And so when he's defeated... Uh, if you've watched the extended editions of the movies, of the Peter Jackson movies, uh, Wormtongue stabs him in the tower and he falls down, which is a great scene. Uh, but Saruman actually uh, runs away and we don't encounter we encounter him alive at the end of the return of the king. Um, yeah. So yeah. he's the def- books in the movie really are different on that one. <laughs> yeah. So he's defeated here for now. Yeah. 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 In the movies. They wrap it up nicely. In the books, what's interesting about him coming back is all of this. You know, we're seeing all this nature versus the industry versus mankind kind of themes. And you see where the hobbits left their peaceful home because, you know, what's going on in all of Arda. And then when they come back, they see that the wickedness of industry of all this other stuff had made it to their home and is attacking their home. And this, you know, in the books, and they have to defend their home once more to get back to the peaceful life, the good life, more or less. Um Man, I know we talked about a lot of the characters. I have. I don't think have we described who the horns are. We have not. Yet? We have not. So th- this that's actually one of the more interesting things. So the ants have a clear creation story of how the ants came to be, and at first they were just like the tree spirits, and eventually they kind of took on different tree forms. And if you read the chapter about ants, which we're going to talk about on Arbor Day, fascinating what all the ants look like. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to hold off on some of that, but. Treebeard mentions that some of the ants have become more tree-like, and 
you know, less lively and they became horns, but also some of the trees become more lively. And what I thought was really fun about that too, again, this is just a teaser for Arbor Day now, but <laughs> he said, <laughs> it's not necessarily the ones that are, you know, younger or live or more alive. It's not the ones that have rotten wood are the dead ones. It's not about that at all. And uh, that's just a teaser. It's really interesting how Tolkien views what means life for the Ents and the Horons. For now, I'll just say some of the Horons are trees that have become more Ent-like. Some of them are Ents that became more tree-like. Yeah. That's what those are. And I think that if I remember right, the Horns are the ones that are at the Battle of Helm's Deep. The Ents go to Isengard. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're actually, to Will's credit, he mentioned this earlier, they're Technically, aren't any ints at Helm's Deep. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I found a reason to talk about them anyway. <laughs> yes, you did. They're, they're there in the background. They're, they're, they're backstage, ready to go into action. They're just waiting on that next episode we're going to do. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, other than... So, so, we mentioned what's going on with Saruman. We mentioned the Urukai, the ints, the Huron. Um, even the dwarves' history with this, which, for those who don't know... Men are the only ones in the battle in the books. The movie had elves join them. That doesn't happen. Yeah. We're talking about the book version of the battle. In the book version, what are your, what's what's some of y'all's other favorite characters that's involved in this story? Will, I'll let you go first. Oh, um, yeah, I, for me, um, rereading it, like, it was hard for me, like, there's not a lot of names that I, I, I like go towards but it's just the the three that are there that are part of the original fellowship it's like seeing their leadership seeing them bonding uh seeing them uh pull together and pull other people together and other people are looking to them uh and their leadership aragon and then gimli and and legolos uh i i it's just it's just so captivating and then there's this thing of like you know leading up to it gandalf is like ah, i got a bolt i have a small errand i needed to do boom and he take he's reunited <laughs> with with the shadow facts and kind of like this is what i need to do so um and and if you like you didn't know if it wasn't spoiled you didn't know all that you'd be like okay why don't he just abandon us now and there's this kind of confusion of like in the he's seen in the wild there's rumors of him going around like is he saruman is a saruman out there is it who is this because people don't know it's like gandalf the white right now um but they call him the white rider but then him like emerging back um at the minute, last minute, to, or at the new dawn, to to help and and unite and, and defeat uh, all of them coming together. It's just it's just an epic at twenty page, like yeah. <laughs> again again like this is like an hour in the movie and twenty pages in the book. Um, but but it is so rich, so you need that much time to kind of show what that looks like um, in its yeah. movie time. And that is why this episode is releasing at dawn on the fourth. I'm gonna Ooh. look up when dawn is. So, mm-hmm. it'll so if you get that notification on your phone at like 6.32 a.m., that's why. So Joshua yeah. Or, or is, you know, if you're on YouTube, it'll have the premiere time and you'll know when Don is. <laughs> uh, and Joshua, that makes Joshua the Gandalf the White of Systematic Geekology. So. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, I like it. Perfect. I like it. Perfect. I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm going bald before I go white for some reason. <laughs> uh, it's okay though. I mean, bald people are super hot, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're yeah. They're, they're super cool. They're super cool. Uh, well, I, I'm just gonna look like a super villain though, because uh, you know I've had brain surgery, so I have this big scar all the way down my head. <laughs> Dude, super villains are in right now. I mean, people watch documentaries I'm, I'm about like Lex. serial killers, and like people love serial killers. So even that your- <laughs> that Nick just came on our show to call me a serial killer. <laughs> That's right. 100%. Urukai. You're an Urukai. Yep. You're an Urukai. That's it. Like, I'm um, 
I actually, yeah, if I was a serial killer, I think I would specifically only kill Urukai. Oh, nice. Yeah, Other orcs are fine. Right, Urukai right. I have a problem with. They're scary. Yeah. Unless they have potential to be redeemed, then you're just an awful person and a serial killer all over again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, be looking out for our new What If episode, What If Urukai Were Redeemed. Ooh. Um, <laughs> oh man okay nick what were some of your other favorite characters did he name all of them did will take them all well i mean it's hard because the people who get the most uh prominence in that chapter are already the favorites right you got gandalf legolas gimli aragorn like they're everyone's favorites you got a couple people like hama who is he's a leader in uh rohan um Oh, the current leader of Helm's Deep who ends up coming with Gandalf. I can't remember his name, but he's really cool. Um, but my probably my favorite is Theoden in this chapter. One of my favorites because they do. Don't mind. Say with this. Yeah, he, he's I mean, he's just so good. And like the emotions that he does. One of the things the movie does really well is they capture just how um almost defeated he is he's proud but he's also defeated and i think one thing that the book does that the movie kind of does wrong is that he's like theoden's ready to admit defeat and aragorn is the one who's like we're gonna ride out we're gonna you know go out with a bang but it's theoden who ends up making the speech in there because he's a king and that's something that's weird that the movies do wrong Aragorn and and I get it but like Aragorn is like oh the reluctant king and they even do the same thing here with Theoden where he's like the reluctant leader um, and they have to have other people motivate them but I love Theoden in the books because he's just like I'm gonna go out we have our backs against the wall we are gonna face these monsters and make an end of it and that's now did he lose a son as well didn't he lose a son his son is already part of that 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 grief that that he's experiencing and, and what am i going to do with the rest of my life what do i do with this grief how do i channel it um you know i, I yeah it, what do we do in our tragedy and do i do i channel it for the good or or do i let it take over the other yeah. direction so yeah and nick you you were mentioning some of this earlier and it, it kind of triggers for me because they is one of my favorites in this too it's funny how I, and, and this is what's great about literature in general. You could read something and it means something different to you at different points in your life. And the authors are okay with that. Yeah. Believe it or not, they're okay with, Tolkien has no problem with me reading it either of the ways that it's impacted me in my life. I think biblical writers were cool with that too, y'all. Just, Boom. just you know, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, so, um, <laughs> no, so, so I remember the first few times that I encountered Theoden, I thought of it much more like, my Pentecostal upbringing. And I still think there's a lot of truth in this of, you know, he was kind of possessed. He kind of had this darkness about him. And when he was redeemed, when he was brought into the light, he saw all the harm he did, all the evilness that he caused. And he immediately wanted to do something right about it. And I like that story. Now I'm reading it as someone who has gone through a little bit more and seen a lot of other people's stories who dealt with the darkness of the church, who had their eyes open to the problems of some of the more constrained part of the church, how the church has been propagating a lot of hate and a lot of different stuff and had their eyes open and deconstructed their faith and realized I still love Jesus, but a lot of what I was doing in the name of church was really harmful and they want Mm. to go and fix that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I I think this can be read many different ways, but there's a lot of truth there in when you see the light of a situation, you need to fix it. 
No, I, that I really love you saying that, Josh, because that resonates with my experience. Because I went through, I was I originally went to college to be a pastor and did some ministry afterwards, and I'm now not in that realm anymore. But I was kind of went through what a lot of people in religious education go through, or later on, is that I was like, I don't know if I believe this stuff anymore. What is God like? Everything I've been taught is kind of coming to a certain uh, structural. And I guess you could say um, to a certain extent, and part of what brought me back to uh, religious um, reconstruction and trying to figure things out. And like you said, how do I make the change with the positive? I've got my back against the wall and maybe even the way that I got behind these walls was through privileged colonial imperial means or whatever. And uh, but Tolkien was part of my uh transition moment that of waking me up to what what could be possible in my own experience and how do i fight those uh urukai those armies those monsters <laughs> if you will you know god that's yeah. such a great analogy with with the kind of the uh, awakening of theoden i mean like gandalf's walking into they have to give away all their weapons they have to strip all their weapons but like gandalf is like oh you're gonna take away an old man's staff i gotta lean on this thing and they're like <laughs> okay you can hold on to your staff but it's that staff that goes in that shines the light uh while they're there and then and then theoden doesn't he go out on the ledge and he kind of breathes in the fresh air and looks at the field he looks at looks at like the homeland and the nature and he's like ah oh, there, there's something that needs to happen there there's a there's a reawakening there that's so rich and that that i think it does touch to whether it's religious trauma emerging out of it or, or therapy or, or a realization of, of kind of um, not just enlightenment, but, but seeing things through, through new eyes and new lens and, and healing taking place. Um, very rich. That's a very rich image. I love that. Yeah. I, Nick, thanks for sharing. And to build off of what, what you kind of were talking about there too, disarming themselves going into, to it. And even when you see Gandalf, Gandalf does not threaten Theoden. He threatens the one who is harming him. Yeah. And so many times, again, this works both ways, right? Um, when I think about my, my Pentecostal and Baptist brothers or whatever, and how sometimes we go about ministry, sometimes we want to attack the sinner with Bible verses and tell them why they're sinners and why they're bad people. And I'm like, okay, but that's actually not how Jesus did that. Uh, you actually disarm yourself and find common space and love them to God. You don't threaten them to God, you know? And then on the other hand, there's a lot of us who have gone through this and seen the harm that some of the church does. And we think the best way to battle it is to throw Bible verses at them and tell them, you know, this is how Jesus would handle that. That's not, you know, this is anti-biblical and you're a bad person and you're a racist and whatever other name you want to throw on there. But attacking them actually is not how you help them see the light. Instead, it is finding those things that has a grip on them, attack those things and approach them with gentleness. It's something um, that, that came out to my attention recently. I think it's in first Peter, that verse that says, uh, defend your faith, you know, um, be strong and prepared to defend your faith or whatever. And I always hear that part of the verse and never the thing that goes right afterwards where it says yet to do this with gentleness and reverence. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's like, hmm, why is that part never mentioned? <laughs> yeah. And that whole second verse of like John 316, God shall live the world. And then 316, so not to judge or condemn the world. <laughs> There's another verse right after it. And and yeah, and, and kind of reflecting on on just the overall themes of Tolkien is that it's like 
what do you what do you do with evil? Do you let it get away with it, or do you confront it? And then, like, yeah, that's that's the discernment process is how do you confront it? But then, it, when it's within us, or we're doing those things to harm other people, we then have to confront it within ourselves, or have a community hold us accountable to that to that as well. And I imagine Will could probably speak to this better than either of us could. It's harder when you've been the king or the pastor, right? And you realize that I've actually was the leader that allowed this darkness to surround the people and. Mm. What is my response to this? We are now at the brink of war because I've been blinded. What is my response to this? And that's, um, I, I just imagine that being extra challenging. You know, if you're not the king and you're just like, oh man, I messed up. Good thing someone was protecting me. But if you're the one calling the shots and now an entire group of people are in jeopardy because of your actions or have been harmed because of you, what do you do then? Yeah. Heavy is the head that wears the crown for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand why people want to be pastors. People who are like, oh, I've always wanted to be a pastor make no sense to me. Like, I like the, when I hear the stories of people who are like, I kind of just ended up being a pastor. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense of like, I wanted yeah, to be Yeah, being a kid who hated reading and was had a fear of public speaking and and got self-conscious in big, large groups of people uh, together. You know, guess what I do every Sunday? Yeah, that's that's something. <laughs> um, yeah. The irony, how that, that kind of, but, but yeah, there, there's a con that comes through that. But then there is a sense of like, um, and the reason I'm a pastor is just the love of people and shepherding and exploring the deep questions that people wrestle with. So my, that gateway for me was like the big questions in theology with, with youth ministry and, and being a church camp counselor and walking with kids and hearing their stories and being able to open their eyes to, to the expanding the universe and the world that they are in and, and capturing a sense of imagination and, and love of, of God. And then that eventually expanded that you could do those things with in congregations and with people <laughs> and large groups of people. And so that's what keeps me going. Yeah. The, the, um, yeah, the ins and out and, and people can be awful things, do awful things, and people do weird things when they're scared or grieving and uh, just understanding that stuff, that that that's hard to carry um, with you, but you don't do it alone. You have a group community bonded together to help each other out. And so like, yeah, Theoden didn't defeat um, or have the victory of by himself. He had a whole army, he had people, he had leaders, he had different groups. He had diff diverse group of people, a dwarf, an elf, a human, a wizard, <laughs> you know, not just all my same group behind my wall who look like me and have the same color skin as me, but like a different group of people. Um, uh, they're working together as a team. And I think that makes a difference. And if our churches and communities look like that, that would make a difference. Yeah, I love that. And one thing Tolkien takes for granted in this story that a lot of people seem to just not understand that I just want to like, this is one of those truths that like if if you could beat someone over the head with the truth, this would be one of the ones I would want to do it with, you know, <laughs> is people actually don't distrust a leader who admits that they were wrong. Right. You, right. you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like the fact is he saw the light and said, oh, man, I messed up. I think called on his people and said, hey, I messed up. We need to defend this together. And they respected him for it. They didn't, you know, they're like, oh, man, he was wrong once. Bump this yeah, yeah. guy forever. <laughs> I think that the fact that you're harping on that, Josh, specifically in these passages, it just makes you such a close reader of Tolkien and also will what makes you a good pastor is that, it, and obviously this is based on what Tolkien's words were, uh, but Tolkien even writes a letter about, he was so he was a dedicated Roman Catholic his whole life, and he basically came up with like a Latin term for like the ideal priest. And I can't remember the Latin, but it's basically the humble priest is essentially what it comes down mm. to. The one who mm -hmm. uh, basically stumbled upon it or doesn't believe that he deserves the position. 
Um, and it's in one of his letters specifically. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. And what's crazy about Tolkien too, is all of his experiences allow him to write this better. So you see like his Catholic background is theology, allowing him to develop what brought the King to realize they need to fortify Helm's deep immediately. Uh, then you see his history with war in world war two, where he's able to describe the war and use the war tactics in such a way where it's like actually accurate to what, um, old war styles would have been like when you were doing sword and shield kind of stuff. And it's like, Oh man, that's actually, um, real tactics. <laughs> yeah. Going, going back into kind of leadership, because that's a big part of Tolkien too. I, a person that I, I admire and look to is Brene Brown. Um, she has a couple of Ted talks out there in great books, but she has a book called dare to lead. And the whole thing is about like, you don't have to put up a front that you're the strongest and the most right of all situations. I think we can look at our, um, political leaders uh, and, and look <laughs> through that too. But, but like, you don't have to pretend to have the right answers, but you, rather you stay curious and you, and you ask the right um, questions rather than having all the right answers. There's a sense of being vulnerable and being honesty with, with your vulnerability and, um, and weakness and imperfection that is attractive to others to say, I can be a part of that, about part of that too. So yeah, uh, a great book on leadership to read. We're not doing recommendations yet, but dare to lead Brene Brown. Mm. Well, while we're doing uh, uh, midway recommendations, <laughs> also, um, whether you agree with his final stance or not, just completely ignore the actual subject matter. Look at the story of Barack Obama. He writes some of his testimony on how he changed his mind legally about same-sex marriage, but not necessarily theologically. And then later he kind of develops his theology and just kind of watching how he's able to change his mind and challenge his own thinking. Regardless of if you agree with where he comes down at the end, that's the mark of a good leader. Really mm -hmm. being able to rethink yourself and question yourself and leading people to understand, hey, I changed my mind. So let's do it this way now. And, you know, just being open to being wrong. Man, you didn't know you were going to start something when you said the humble pastor, did you? I did. I really didn't, you know, and I think that we're talking about <laughs> leadership and you had mentioned some of the war tactics and thinking about we're talking about good leaders and now Barack Obama, who, you know, I was the former uh, general. Uh, the, what is that? I don't even know the right terms. I'm a terrible citizen. <laughs> That's funny. A commander in chief. Yeah. Commander in chief. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think it was really funny that I had such a good transition. And then we we just derailed ourselves. So, yeah, yeah. His history with World War Two also brought some my, some wild war tactics that were actually really accurate into the story. And that's part of what made me want to talk about the Battle of Helm's Deep is I heard a podcast. One of my favorite podcasts is Advisory Opinions. It's a legal podcast, but they brought Brett Devereux on once and they discussed um, battle tactics in our favorite fantasy literatures because that's what he writes about is like battle tactics and how accurate some of our other stories are. I really enjoyed hearing him discuss how like, yeah, how they do it in game of Thrones. Uh, no war has ever been thought that way ever. That's not how it works. So that he was like, but Lord of the Rings super on point. <laughs> and like he was comparing how the orcs did the battle of Helm's deep to different battle tactics that we know of from like the middle ages. And I was like, man, okay. And that had me like rewatching the movie, rereading the books and going, Oh, wait. Yeah, no, actually, from what I know of like Roman culture, even no, it makes a lot of sense that this is how it would be done. <laughs> well, someone who just finished binging like all of Game of Thrones, all eight seasons and, <laughs> and how prevalent like walls are and zombies and other creatures, monsters, climbing walls, defeating walls, tearing down walls. I'm the whole time I'm thinking like, yeah, Tolkien did this first. Deep. Tol 
Duncan did this. He only he didn't need like three seasons. He he just needs like twenty pages. That's right, and it becomes even more epic than an entire uh, series on HBO. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we are not here to do the verses of Lord of the Rings verse. Very true. Game of Thrones, uh, mostly because that wouldn't be fair, but. <laughs> also i uh no no it is interesting when you see even um in the movie the way they the shields interlocked so that it's like like a square that's actually how roman shields worked mm. so the fact that peter jackson went into that much detail building onto what tolkien already wrote and did i was like man no i'm glad because this battle scene is pretty epic <laughs> i and i love that you know because i've only kind of dabbled in some of brett devro's writings um and i first heard about him through the prancing pony podcast which they 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 specifically broke him out for the helms deep chapter when they were reading perfect um but he, maybe we'll get him on our show <laughs> you should he probably would come on uh <laughs> based on what I've seen his blog posts and stuff, but he, um, you know, but just, just going back to how hyper real Tolkien tried to make everything and how we can even connect that to his own experience as a, as a world war one vet. And he, you know, obviously was very familiar with battle tactics. He would have had to been familiar. He probably was taught. He had to go to lectures, um, taught by war historians and scholars of battle tactics. And so he would have probably been familiar. I mean, most definitely, at least with Roman culture and classical, you know, Greek culture, but then probably through his material or military education would have also probably had to learn about the history of development of battle. And so, yeah. Which it's why you see where like, I honestly think it's easier for me to see it in the movie than it is for me to read it in the books, even though I know it happens in both places. But like where you see um, when they fall back, when, you know, uh, recruit, not what's it called? You're talking about the not backups. Oh, yeah. Well, no. When um, new people come in. Oh, um, reinforcements. <laughs> My brain's just reinforcements. Yeah. Yeah. When reinforcements come in and all that, like you see it in all of the battles of um, of Arda when he talks about it. And it's like. Actually, no, that that makes perfect sense. Gandalf randomly going off and getting somebody and it taking overnight is how that would have worked. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, wow, that's, um, huh. Yeah, I mean, I guess the history of war, like you always have the front line who are like just sitting ducks and then you have like the reinforcements, those who get in the game last, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess, I guess in kind of present day, like war tactics, I guess uh, Tolkien didn't have to worry about like, Spy balloon, <laughs> spy balloons or anything like that. Yeah, no, no, none, none of that. So true. Okay, just, just but, one. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe uh, flying uh, Nazgul fell beast. You know, <laughs> that's true. Like, that's mm, true. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, e- even to like the methods they used to get through the walls, the the way animals were used in war, which mm. that's actually just just as a completely different thing. If you just do a study on how animals have been used in war, like even like rhinos and pigs, weird. Humans come up with some really weird stuff, guys. If you look to later on in Return of the King, for those of you who want to get super nerdy with Bet- Brett Devereaux, <laughs> he he actually talked when Tolkien talks about the mustering of Rohan to go and do the whole epic battle to save Gondor with their cavalry. Uh, he basically he specifically talks about. Uh, the different types of horses that they had to travel and how they set up camp. And it's like mm. almost a hundred percent accurate to how military cavalry functioned and traveled. Oh yeah. yeah. So much thought went into that kind of stuff. And, and this is, this is why some of this is important too. even just the general understanding of 
the importance of war. You know, we talked a lot about how without this, Gondor might have fell, right? Yeah. And the impacts that would have for that and kind of the chain effect. And that's what a lot of people forget when we think about war. Current day, for example, Ukraine is a big deal, not mm. because of Ukraine, but because of China, but because of Taiwan, because of all the other things that happen. And that's something our political leaders now are thinking through is not oh, we need to do the most good in the world because, I mean, there's so many other countries starving who've gone through war and stuff that we don't get involved with. The reason we care so much about this is because of the chain effect. What does this battle mean for the next battle? Hmm. Right. And that's where, not in the book, because in the book, the ants were going to go anyway, but in the movie, Mary stands up and he asks the ants, he's like, how can you not go? You're part of this world too, aren't you? <laughs> and that's the thing with Ukraine right now, where we're asking ourselves, like, how can we not be involved? We have to care what happens. Global consequences revolve around these battles. And, I, you know, I love that you tied it back to like how relevant it is because Tolkien talked about how uh, reading fantasy, um, we call it escape. Um, and he talks about it not as an escape from uh, not like the he calls it the don't mistake escape with the flight of the deserter, but with like the escapee from uh, from the prisoner of war. So saying like the world we live in, that these are almost like safe havens. But then he also talks about it inducing a sense of recovery in us. And we talked a little bit about it around, mm. um, you know, religious journeys and things like that. But like you were talking about is that uh, when Mary and Pippin, even in the movies, right. Are saying when Mary says, <laughs> are you part of this world? Like it applies to like, okay, these things happen in this story and people have to make really hard decisions and it's not just good and evil. It's not black and white. Like you said, there's chain reactions that happen even in, in Tolkien. And so, like you said, mm -hmm. it, it, it can even refreshen our maybe black and white perspective that we had about current global politics or conflicts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When you go to the, the gas pump, not thinking, oh man, our political leaders or why are we doing, you know, whatever think, you know what, I'd actually be willing to pay another 25 cents a gallon if it stops the things from happening with China and Taiwan that will end up making things worse for everybody. Yeah. And yes, that's a small price to pay for us, a bigger price to pay for our government. But like it does come down to everyone having to think what is our part in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and again, like, yeah, how making this relevant to our own lives. It, it, is it fantasy? Is it escape? Is it entertainment? Sure. But that's kind of what we, that's what we have to do with systematic ecology is we, these, these things we love and geek out on eventually lead down a road. If, if you go deeper and dig the, down beneath the surface a little bit, it, it will apply to, to your lives, your journey, what's going on in your world and in your relationships and the communities that you inhabit and are entangled with. And that's, that's pretty important stuff. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's just interesting how, how all it ties together in in the story and how much it relates to real life and um one thing c.s lewis you know we talk about tolkien i like to talk about c.s lewis a lot too and he talks that he has this like doctrine of imagination i bring this up a lot because i think it's so powerful and he says you know a lot of times our minds our reasoning isn't actually what helps us sometimes it acts as a guard and it keeps us from thinking about new ideas and what imagination does is sneak past the guard so that you can see some bigger truths that you wouldn't have seen if you let your mm. reasoning get in the way. Sneaking past that sentinel. I get it. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. It. So <laughs> with that, with that, I wanted to give us all a chance to talk about, do you have a favorite passage specifically from the Helm's Deep section? I'm going to cheat a little bit. So I'm going to go first because I'm cheating. Because <laughs> it's not specifically during the battle. Um, and it's not specifically about Helm's Deep. <laughs> 
So I'm super cheating. But it's it's when Treebeard in the book, and this doesn't happen in the movie, which is why I'm going to bring it up again on Arbor Day. He's making the decision for the trees to get involved, which includes the Huron going to the Battle of Helm's Deep. So it's not completely unrelated. But when he's making this decision of them getting involved, he says, of course, it is likely enough, my friends, likely enough that we are going to our doom, the last march of the ends. But if we stayed at home and did nothing, doom would find us anyway, sooner or later. That thought has long been growing in our hearts, and that is why we are marching now. It was not a hasty resolve. Now at least the last march of the ends may be worth a song. I, he sighed. We may help the other peoples before we pass away. Still, I should have liked to see the songs come true about the Entwives. I should dearly have liked to see Thimbrethel again. But there, my friends, songs like trees bear fruit, only in their own time and their own way. And sometimes they are withered untimely. I Ooh. love that quote. He's talking Ooh. about, you know, this might be our last chance to be involved. And this might be our song. It's not the song that we wanted. We had other songs. I liked my, he liked the idea of his song being this love song where he found the Entwives. But instead, he said, maybe my last song is this, Ooh. that we are able to do some good in the world. And I would argue if the Ents don't go to Isengard, Isengard puts out more reinforcements. The Battle of Helm's Deep may not have been won. Agreed. So I'll say that this is still an important part of the Battle of Helm's Deep. 100% love His it. decision. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> also, I like the uh, the songs withering part because I'm like, man, how many times do we listen to like old media or something? We're like, man, that aged poorly. <laughs> yeah, or or a song that you love, and then like after about fifty times listened, you're like, I cannot listen to that again. Like it's I hate done. this song. Now. <laughs> I hate this song so much, but you loved yeah. it before. What's funny to me is like um, I forget what the name of the song, but it's like the Suicide Hotline song that came out like a few years ago. Oh yeah, Hotline. <laughs> are you talking about Hotline Bling? No, no, no. It, like the name of the song was the 1-800 number that was the suicide hotline. Oh, really? <laughs> and it had like the whole music what? video. God, it was a really popular song at the time. I oh, can't boy. Think of how it went. But the only reason I feel like it aged poorly, like the video for the song was um, a guy coming out to his parents and like it, it was like really like traumatic. But the the hotline has changed now. So the name of the song is the old hotline number that's no longer the number for suicide hotline. So it's like, man, that's a. That's tragic. I'm going to send you guys the link and you're going to know the song. It's, okay. It was a very popular song for a while. Okay. It was by Logic. Okay. I'm ready. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> did either of you guys have a quote or passage that you wanted to read from Helm's Deep? I, uh, I do, actually. One, I, I goes back to Theoden. So one of my favorite things in Tolkien is that Tolkien is not afraid to be complex. He's not afraid to be paradoxical. And he's not... Uh, reconciliatory all the time which is kind of how human experience is anyway we just don't make sense uh and one of the <laughs> things i love is that he says he's the most hopeful human being and writer and he's also the most cynical um and almost tragic writer in person and he you can see it kind of arise in his writing and his dialogue and the way he describes things and one of the things is is uh, Theoden basically uh, losing hope that they're actually going to win the battle. And so in Tolkien's uh, mythology, everything's in a history of decline. So there's going to be ultimate victory at the end, but not until the entire world goes to complete garbage. And so here's here's Theoden kind of um, 
I guess, just musing on about that reality <laughs> in his current situation. So he said, it is said that the Hornberg has never fallen to assault, said Theoden. But now my heart is doubtful. The world changes and all that once was strong now proves unsure. How shall any tower withstand such numbers and such reckless hate? Had I known that the strength of Isengard was grown so great, maybe I should not so rashly mm. have ridden forth to meet it for all the arts of all arts of Gandalf. His counsel seems not now so good as it did under the morning sun. And then Aragorn says, do not judge the counsel of Gandalf until all is over, Lord. And so part of it's it's all of that thing where it's like everything I once knew and all the tales I grew up uh, being told, like as I'm currently re you know, kind of reinterpreting the experiences of my past and letting it inform my present experience, uh, it feels like everything's, you know, not panning out the way I've been told uh, mm. the cynical decline. And then, of course, Aragorn, and he's even questioning Gandalf, who's like this representative of God and, and hope and victory. <laughs> and he says, I don't even think I shouldn't have done this. Gandalf said this, and I'm, I'm questioning myself. And Aragorn says, just wait until the end. You don't know until the end. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the most cynical, hopeful, beautiful passage um, that one of them, one of them in this chapter. So, yeah, that's a good moment. Ah, that's hard to follow, guys. All right, so I'll I'll remind. There's a couple images there that I really like as his rich imagery that he lifts up. One of them, I, I do like um, Aragon looking out and, and talk about the the new dawn emerging, and then with new dawn come reinforcements. And then there's this other part too where they, he's describing this storm of this tempest of war that's on its way. I mean, they don't know how many orcs are coming because it's dark on the night, but then like all of a sudden the storm comes and a literally flash of lightning uh, kind of flashes the air. And then they're then in that brief moment, like to see how many orcs there are. Um, and then they're like, Oh crap. And then it disappears. And they're again back to blackness. That imagery of like just a, a quick reveal of what you're up against um, is, is so rich and so good. But, but this is the part I want to, I want to read about. There's one, where it says um, Gimli stood leaning against the breastwork upon the wall. Legolas sat above on the parapet fingering his bow and peering out into the gloom. This is more to my liking, said the dwarf stamping on the stones. Ever my heart rises as we draw near the mountains. There is good rock here. This country has tough bones. I felt them in my feet as we came up from the dike. Give me a year and a hundred of my kin, and I would make this a place that armies would break upon like water. I do not doubt it, said Legolos, but you are a dwarf, and dwarves are strange folk. I do not like this place, and I shall like it no more by the light of day, but you comfort me. So you have, you see like you see their emergence of their friendship, but you know more and more where you know, things are expendable or thrown away. We talked about sustainability, but this whole sen- I I want to lean into more of the country with with tough bones or or hard rock that's going to stand the test of time. And so so what is it that that lasts? What is it that's going to um, fortify you in your life? Is it is it that which is just um, expendable and can throw away or use once um, and toss into the sea or, or or into your garbage bin, or are you going to um, have something that really stands the test of time? So him, like just that pregnant pause of, a, of, a, of the gloom of war, but then going, we're, we have a good foundation here. Is that foundation the rock that he's standing on or, or the friendship that is emerging between Legolos and Gimli and the people that are mm. fighting this war together? So good. It makes me think, uh, when we're talking about like, the land, I, one of the funniest like 
not not to step on our Arbor Day episode again, but <laughs> good lord, you're, man, one of the funniest ones. So many times. God, I'm so excited. I get so excited to talk about Lord of the Rings that I'm like. <laughs> It's like when I go to my family in Kentucky and we're eating breakfast, talking about what we're going to do for dinner. That's how I feel about Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm like, I'm doing this episode, talking about the next time we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. he, um, Treebeard, he's talking to to the hobbits and he's like, I guess you would call this a hill. Funny thing, though, it was around way before you. You think it would have named you. (laughs) I just thought it was so funny. I'm like, yeah, Treebeard. Why did the hill name us? (laughs) Oh, just funny stuff. You know, another quote I really liked from the movie that wasn't in the book was um and it's because you know they they portrayed Theoden a lot differently but when he was being kind of hesitant at the like when it seemed like the battle was going to be lost at Helm's Deep he he looks out he goes so much death what can man do against such reckless hate I like I just like the the the, the verbiage the reckless hate yeah and then Aragorn responds with come on ride on let's go like Aragon's response to this deep question about death and reckless hate is let's ride on. Let's fight ride it. On. Ride you know? On. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's overwhelming. There's nothing we can do. So let's fight it. Time to ramble on. That's it. And I, I, that's, and that's something that I don't know. It really speaks to me where I'm kind of like that, where I'm very nihilistic sometimes, or I look at this world and I'm like, man, yeah, it's complete darkness. There's nothing we could do to change it. So let's try. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it makes no sense, but uh, let's, let's try. Mm. Hmm, Got to do something, <laughs> man. Yeah, I everything about this was so powerful. And and I know we we've gone through a lot of different topics, but so much still hinges on on the fact of this story was all contrasting. And we've mentioned it so many times, I'm not going to go back over it. But the contrast of industry of man made things to that stuff that lasts, you know, whether it's friendship, whether it is nature the trees the mountain versus the dam you know (laughs) like i i don't know i I think there was a a lot of talking to that where he very much wanted to get more back to some of the simple stuff and it's kind of anti-industry i'm not anti-industry we're recording a podcast but i still think there's a lot of truth to that and i wonder if pastor will could speak to the balance maybe we should get between industry and allowing the trees to speak. Yeah, I think, yeah, the balance there is like, how are we being good stewards of what we're entrusted with? Like, like, yeah, we're created. I think the whole point of like us being created in the image of God, isn't that like God has two eyes, two ears and a bald head like me, but, but like this, (laughs) this ability to love and create, be a co-creator in the midst of, um, of, of the creation that we inhabit. So, so yeah, we're called to create and, and part of the artistic thing are, our perhaps um, industry or, or technology. Technology has been uh, just a godsend and a blessing in the midst of a pandemic with, with my church and staying connected and, and viewing online and, and creating an online digital community where we can stay connected with one another. But if that's all there is and you kind of go just bury yourself behind that solely, then you miss the other part of like human connection in, in the flesh with one another face to face. So there, there's a balance. And I think how we're being good stewards and I guess the, the pride and um, the human tendency to create um, tools into weapons or or to create like 
um, products for consumption and to, to get richer, uh, for me, that selfishness, that that's the ebb and flow of what we're looking at here. And you can see that within token too, like the, yeah, the creation of Eisen, um, Isengard and the creation of things is, is like a corruption and, and, a, and a hunger and lust for power rather than how do I make the other better uh, better and and a part of the community that I, that I'm a part of. So I, it, it it boils down to kind of like a theology philosophy of of how I'm being a good steward of of what's entrusted to me. Plus, it is always just funny to see another creation of Numenor get flooded. But so true. So <laughs> oh, and true. to find to find out more about that, you know, go to watch Rings of Power. So true. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I um no, I mean speaking to to that though, I go to Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes is what I'm thinking of of um where the the writer writes there's a time to tear down there's a time to build there's a time to weep there's a time to laugh I, I think there is a time for these things and that's where again we go to global consequences if all we're doing is tearing down trees you know there's a i forget what it was there's a certain type of tree that we need to build some of the chips that test that run teslas and ps5s and all of that and we came dangerously low to none of them for a while and that's why you couldn't get a ps5 for a really long time and that's where you know talking about global consequences I strongly believe in a, if you're going to tear down, you have to build up right now. I would say, you know, for every tree we cut down, let's build two. I think if we had the whole time, every time we cut something down, planted another tree, we wouldn't be in such a terrible predicament right now. I don't think industry itself is evil. I think industry, while we neglect the creation God gave us is evil. So yeah, let's move forward. Let's do industrial things, but let's also take care of and, um, nurture the planet that we've been entrusted with yeah and i love that passage of ecclesiastes i've i've preached a lot on that at memorial services and funerals because it, it captures this kind of both and of of life and death um heartbreak and 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 hope and 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 it kind of goes through all the things it gives permission there's a time for war but but the notice the last word uh, that is expressed in that poem. The, it goes through every kind of um, imaginable thing that humans experience, but the last word is peace. That's the last word. So, so if we're building towards that, if that is your final word, where is that peace? Whether it's when you take your last breath, or whether um, you come to peace with with your own kind of demise, um, infinitude, or or what you're searching for in the world, the last word um, that this um, kind of existential philosopher in Ecclesiastes. Um, is, is articulating is the last word in that poem is, is peace. And that's sort of the end of the war of the ring. That's sort of the end of the trilogy really is they destroy this ring that symbolizes selfishness, industry, all these other things. And it means peace for Arda. And to solidify that message, when they come back, they see Saruman tearing up the Shire with these things that these weird creations he built and they have to fight. They had, there's a time of war to be once again rewarded with peace in the Shire. And I think that's where we all want this image of the Shire. We all want to go to New Zealand, chill out in Hobbiton, right? Amen. But sometimes in order to get there, <laughs> we have to be willing to to grow. We have to be willing to tear things down, do the industry start. And then we have to know when to plant, when to let life nurture and develop and actually prioritize that. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I and I heard there's actually waves in New Zealand too. Like you could even surf. I don't know how far the Shire is from like a Let's good go. point a good point break, but um it's a little colder, but man, I'll put on a wetsuit. I'll surf a point break yeah. in, in the Shire. 
It sounds like we sure. just need to make a systematic <laughs> ecology trip. Uh, as with, me, oh. I will be, I will hide in one of your briefcase if y'all go. Uh, and then we, <laughs> oh, you're a part of it. Okay, you're a part of it. You'll you'll be it, it'll be a uh, yeah. We'll be like the, the, the fellow, yeah, yeah. We'll be the fellowship of the ring with different podcast uh, characters coming together yeah. and, and taking a journey. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, did you guys have anything else you wanted to mention about the Battle of Helm's Deep or just this book in particular? Uh, just to say, if you are a fan of the movies, the New Rings of Power show or even the old timey cartoon animations, that's great. Keep loving those things. But if you have not read uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings um, or even The Hobbit or The Silmarillion, I would encourage you to do so. It is uh, it just brings a different element to the story. Um that just gives you a different perspective and a different richness that uh, can add to your uh, nerdy Tolkien experience. Yeah. So Nick, Nick, people knowing that I'm a Star Wars fan, they asked me what order uh, to, to watch Star Wars in because there's so much content. So what order, if they're like, I'm going to start reading um, Tolkien in this Lord of the Rings mythos, uh, where do they start? So I will give you the chronological, uh, the chronology of, the canonical books, and then I will give you my reading suggestions in what order okay. to read them. So chronologically, there is the Silmarillion, which is like the prehistory to every to the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings for like thousands of mm -hmm. years. Then it goes to the, which I've tried to read and got about halfway through. Yep, it's it's a it's a rough time. Um, it, and then that's the Hobbit, and then you've got Lord of the Rings. Um, I would suggest reading The Hobbit first if you are new to Tolkien specifically or new to reading Tolkien. Um, it's It was written for children in the 30s, so it's it's more lighthearted, but it's also like written for a different time and in England, so it's a little more above reading level for children. So it's, it's still enjoyable to read as an adult. Um, and then if you liked it, go into Lord of the Rings. And then if you read Lord of the Rings and you get to the appendices and you get the references to the histories of dwarves and elves and you're like, I want, I have to know more then read the Silmarillion. And uh, that's what, that's my suggestion. Alternative suggestion. Okay. Give us to us, Josh. <laughs> if you don't want to read the Silmarillion, what you could do, just read the Ainulindalei. Uh, then pick up, there's a book that is the Fall of Numenor. And it's just a re-edited version of all the highlights from the Second Age. And that's all the key points you need to know. Ooh. And it's a little bit more digestible. Yeah, 100%. But I'm all for reading the whole Silmarillion. It's actually my favorite. Dude, me too. I've read <laughs> it more psycho. than any other of Tolkien's books. So <laughs> Perfect. We could be psycho together. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Oh, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. I, yeah. This is just great conversation. Great things to discuss and I, I don't want to stop, but I think, I think we've hit a point for the battle, the battle of Helm's deep. We need to let them know how we're celebrating. Um, when you're listening to this, even though it's dawn, there's a strong chance that I have mead on hand because I'm just like, you know what? This one day I deserve to celebrate this battle and I'm just going to do it's it. It's just a medieval so, mimosa, you know, that's all it yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, I forget where, it, where it comes from, but, there's at least one place near here that ships it in. That's dragon blood mead. Mm. It's so good. It's a, it, it tastes like, um, it's a name smog. <laughs> no, it, it kind of tastes like a pomegranate, a very pomegranate, hmm. pomegranate, -y, but it's, yeah, it's meat. So, you know, it's honey. Um, and then <laughs> I'll definitely be eating some form of red meat, probably a roast with some potatoes. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I actually had to leave beer uh, beer camp a little early on that on that Saturday because I was doing a wedding at a meadery and they paid me in mead. So that was fun. Cool. That's nice. Time, first time ever so is, that, is that how you're celebrating Helm's Deep, do they? <laughs> no, I think what I'm going to celebrate is, uh, you know, I'm going to have two breakfasts that day. Uh, it's going to be at dawn. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll wake up and, and do some bacon. I'm going to do that too now. <laughs> yeah, I'll do, I'll do bacon and then uh, I'll turn around and have a second breakfast and, and, and do like some like, um, like incredible omelet. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty fantastic omelet maker. So Ooh. I can, I could, I could create a cool omelet. Yep. I'm an omelet master. Yeah. Now I want to go to Will's house for, for omelet. There you go. I'll do it. Well, that's what you'll make us on our trip uh, right before we get on our flight to New Zealand. We'll spend the night at your house, make us omelets, and then we'll go to New Zealand. Uh, There you go. Man, is shaping up nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Nick, how are you celebrating the the victory of Helm's Deep? So I will probably be doing something similar to what I love breakfast. Um, I love pancakes, especially the carby stuff like biscuits. Um, I love bacon, yeah. all of that. So that's probably how I gravy? will celebrate. Gravy, delicious. Get it? Oh, love it. Um, I make a mean gravy. Ooh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. When we're at Will's house, you will make the biscuits and the gravy, sir. And I yeah, lo- first breakfast and second. Breakfast. That's right. And I love coffee. So, and I am a coffee nerd. So I will barista for you and make you a delicious cup of coffee. Mm. So I will be Damn, having. Man way too much coffee um i i probably i don't know it depends on it's the fourth right is that a when is that is that a monday or something that's a fr- oh it's a saturday i think it's a friday it's saturday, saturday? so Perfect. i will be Perfect. in the afternoon I will definitely be having a meeting. yeah i will be <laughs> having my pint glass and doing something hobbity <laughs> beautiful beautiful also i'll uh, be looking out for for nick to join a drinks with teachers episode sometime in the future talk about his uh barista habits That'd be fun. Dude, I love coffee. We can talk about it. that's the other thing. It's I love Tolkien, I love coffee, and I love punk rock music. So anything. We we could go for hours. Man. Yeah. I could go on about Helms Deep if I was allowed to talk more about the ints. This would have been a much longer episode. So again, tune back in for our birthday. <laughs> Guys, let's let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Do you have any recommendations for us all today, Will? Yeah, going back to kind of like the transformation and evolution of of experience and reconstruction, deconstruction, uh, vulnerability, those kind of things. Pete Inns, uh, who was at Theology Beer Camp, put out a new book called Curveball, When Your Faith Takes Turns You Never Saw Coming, or... How I Stumbled and Tripped My Way to Finding a Bigger God. Uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm about you know, a few chapters in and it's amazing. It's in his voice. It's in his style, very disarming and being just honest about the transformations and evolutions that we take in with, with our human experiences and that, you know, we are humans in process. And so that's a reality we need to embrace. Yeah. He, um, his book, um, how to actually read the Bible, something like that. I forget mm-hmm. how, how it goes, but that was, yep. um, a big part of my faith journey when I was about to just let go of my faith. And I was like, wait a minute, Maybe I am reading this thing wrong. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nick, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Yeah, I am. This is going to be a music related one just because I have recently (laughs) been listening to this band called the Flatliners. I've been listening to it for a while now, but they came out with a new album. I think either. I think it was last year, um, but they are just a good uh, mix between like classic rock and roll and... um, and punk music and they're signed to fat records if that means anything to you all listeners but um it's a good way if you are interested in looking for new music recs it's easy to listen to it's not like 
some of the what you think of with punk um so anyway if the flatliners the the one album i would recommend starting with is dead language my favorite flatliners mm-hmm. album fantastic man i was just gonna say too you you had said i did tolkien heads class i also if i if i might be so bold i started a new stub stack called tolkien pop where i talk about the intersection of tolkien and pop culture um so if you're interested in that uh i would be so happy to be a nerd with you at my uh, tolkien pop sub stack so yeah yeah send me send me your link tree oh, okay link and i'll put it in the show thanks notes, man i know it has all your stuff on there yeah um because I was looking at that the other day. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. What I was going to say about music stuff. Another weird blend. <laughs> Judah and the Lion is like folk hop rock. Oh, yeah. I uh, if you guys want to to hang out with me at some point, I'm April 22nd. I think it is. They're going to be in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm going to be home, there. I'm trying to convince. Town. Yeah, I'm trying town. to convince Will to come join me. Yeah. So right you might get to see both of us. OK, I yeah, need to make a trip up um, there. So yeah i'm always like trying to get more people to check out like judah and the lion and um other passenger songs other than let her go because that's the only one anyone ever knows and i'm i just i love folk. Uh, my recommendation though is gonna be um something we mentioned earlier the advisory opinions podcast episode with brett Devereaux. it was a fantastic like one of my favorite single episodes of podcasts that i've ever listened to was that Ooh. one so much fun it was so cool all right guys well that being said if you want to hear more from Will and I, go to systematicgeekology.org. You can hit the host tab. Both of our names are there. We also have a guest tab if you want to see our other guest episodes. I know Nick's going to be guesting on a few others, uh, Sopranos Talk, all the other things that we're going to be doing. Um, and of course, of course, we need you all to do one very important thing for us, and that is to remember that we're all the chosen people, a geekdom of priest. This was an Anazao Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about our network, be sure to check out the Anazao Ministries podcast network.